Grace, mercy, and peace be to you from God our Father and from our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Our text today is going to be taken from the reading we heard in the Gospel of Luke. You may be seated. We begin today with a word of prayer. Mighty Father, we give you thanks on this day that Jesus has risen from the dead and that he has appeared to many so they might record for us the good news of his conquering of death and our hope of salvation. Now, Lord, as he reigns over us as our Lord, we pray that you would teach us what it means to be faithful servants in your kingdom. To this end, we pray that you would grant us your Holy Spirit, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, in Jesus' name, amen. We have an authority problem. Now, to be sure, when I say this, I don't mean that we have a problem because of the people who are in authority over us. Now, we might have a problem because of the people who are in authority over us, but that's a conversation uh, for another time. When I say we have a, an authority problem, what I mean is that we are people who do not like to have anybody in authority over us. We want to be our own authorities. We want to be our own lords. This is the sort of thing that comes about in our lives when we turn about the age of 15 or 16 and we finally figure out that we know way more than our parents ever knew. And from that point forward, we don't trust anybody in authority over us. In our country, uh, this is really sort of wired into our DNA. After all, as Americans, we're a nation founded on phrases like, th like this. Things that say, uh, there is no sovereign here. We do not like having anybody in authority lording themselves over us. So the point that now in our society, people are fighting for what we might call radical autonomy. Fighting to be a law unto themselves. Because they are convinced that the reason why we have so many problems is because people above us are telling us what to do. So our means of salvation, the way we're going to save ourselves, is by becoming a law unto ourselves. We will become autonomous, a law unto ourselves. I will be my own law, uh, Lord, and I will establish my own law. But if there's anything that we can say for certain, is that law, in any form that it comes, never gives salvation. I mean, if the most perfect law, the most wonderful law ever made, the law that God brought into existence at creation can't save us, then certainly if we try to become a law unto ourselves, we will find ourselves dying, being crushed by a rule of our own making. And yet we simply will not have anybody else be a Lord over us. This is even a problem for us who are in the church. Uh, you've heard me talk about this phrase, I'm sure, way too many times by now. Uh, but the phrase where someone will ask you the question, have you made Jesus the Lord of your life? And I'm sure you've heard me talk uh, about how much I dislike this phrase. But think about that phrase for a second. Even with a phrase like that, it's usually spoken to kind of, you know, make you feel bad and guilty because you don't pray over your wallet every day or you have that corner of your life that you haven't handed over to the Lord yet or something like this. He's not Lord over everything and you're not letting him be. So it's kind of said to, to make you feel guilty and make you feel bad. But the problem with a phrase like that is that it assumes I can make Jesus into anything. As though I'm the one who has the ability or the power to make him Lord in my life. If I ask you the question, have you made Jesus Lord of your life, who's in charge in that conversation of your life? You still are. 
And you're the one, I don't know, voting for Jesus? Making him your Lord? And so now suddenly you're still in charge. And if you can make him Lord over your life, you can just as quickly remove him as Lord from your life. Especially when he says those nasty, difficult things, you know, like love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you and take up your cross and follow me. Thanks not today, Jesus. I need to go find a new Lord. Even for us in the church, as Christians, we simply will not have any lords over us. We won't even uh, vote for Jesus if he doesn't do what we want him to do. So even with God, we have an authority problem. So the good news that I have for you today is this, is that we do not have a Jesus who is sitting around waiting for you to decide whether or not he should be the Lord of your life. He's not asking you if you are willing to accept him into your heart as his Lord. He knows his chances with you. In fact, the one who has given Jesus authority over you is God himself. If you go to the book of Philippians, you will read, and we heard it even in the reading from the book of Acts today, that God has made Jesus Lord over heaven and earth, and that includes over you. By virtue of his, of his dying and his rising, God has given him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You, me, we didn't do that. We didn't put him on that throne. That was given to him by the Father. He is our Lord, and this Lordship of Jesus is simply given to us. We receive it. It is an act of God, you might say, by grace alone. So I suggest today, given no choice in the matter, we may as well just, you know, give up and ask ourselves the question that every good Lutheran confirmation student needs to ask themselves, what does this mean? What does it mean that God has made Jesus Lord of heaven and earth? What sort of Lord is he? What sort of Lord has authority over my life? And as we ask this question today, I think to get a good answer, we need to go no further than our reading that we heard from the Gospel of Luke this morning. Because here in this account, I think Jesus gives us this, this beautiful, perfect picture of what it means to live under his reign, what, it, what he does as our Lord. Now let's just bring ourselves up to speed real quick so we can remember what's going on here. Uh, in this account, it is the afternoon of Easter morning. The afternoon of Easter morning. The afternoon of Easter day. It's the afternoon, not the morning. Never mind. Uh, and these two men are leaving Jerusalem. Two men who were Jesus' disciples. Now they were not of the twelve. They were not one of the twelve disciples. It's very likely that they were among the seventy-two. Jesus had sent out seventy-two other disciples uh, to preach uh, earlier in the Gospel of Luke. And so very likely it's a couple of those uh, disciples. And as they are leaving Jerusalem, they are very confused. They had followed Jesus, they learned from Jesus, and then this weekend things went terribly wrong with Jesus. He was crucified on a cross, shamed, murdered. It was, it was just terrible, everything that happened, and he died. He was buried and put in a tomb. The disciples, for fear, all of them, ran and fled for fear that they might be next. But then that morning, some women went to the tomb uh, to embalm the body of Jesus. And they came back surprised and amazed because the tomb was empty except for some angels who told them that Jesus was risen indeed. And then some of the disciples went themselves to the tomb and they found it also completely empty. 
and these men didn't know what to do with it. And so as they're walking and discussing these things, a third traveler comes along to join them, and it's the Lord Jesus himself. Now, for whatever reason, they are kept from recognizing Jesus. But Jesus himself is on his way somewhere, and about 40 days from that point, he is going to ascend into heaven to receive his seat of authority at the right hand of God. Now, just so we're clear, the right hand of God is not a literal chair sitting next to God's, you know, here's the Father's big chair and Jesus' little chair at the right-hand side. Uh, it's just a term that means he is given power and authority over everything. And as he makes his way to that ascension, he gives these disciples, as well as you and me, a picture of what his reign at the, at the right hand of the Father is going to be like. Now, I've been a pastor for a while, and, and I'm kind of learning finally to preach sermons here. Uh, and so today I'm going to make this great pastor move and use alliteration. We don't always do alliteration around here, but I'm giving you a three-point sermon with alliteration to help you understand the reign of Jesus. And there are three words that help us recognize what Jesus' reign is like, and they all begin with the letter P. All right, so here you go. Here's your alliteration about the Jesus's reign. The first P word that describes the reign of Jesus is that we have a Lord who pursues, pursues. So write that down on your something or other. He pursues us. He comes to his disciples on the road as they're walking away. This is what Luke writes. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. Now, I want you to notice the direction here. Where are these disciples going? They are leaving Jerusalem. Now, they've heard Jesus preach. They've heard him say he was going to die and rise. They heard the women's account that Jesus had risen from the dead. All of this took place in Jerusalem, so they should be expecting to see him there. But instead, they're going away from Jesus. They're going away from Jerusalem. They're going away from where they heard Jesus would be. They're moving away from the word. This is unbelief. They are leaving in unbelief. And now there's two things to say about this. First, before we move on from this, this is who we all are by nature. We, all are, we are all born in unbelief. We are all born uh, by nature in choice in rebellion against God. Ignoring his word, walking away from his word. And that walking away leads to death. This is what St. Paul writes in the book of Ephesians, chapter 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. By nature, Paul is saying, we are all sinners who walk away from Christ, who live in rebellion against God and his word and against his purposes for our life. We are born rebels. So that the only way we can ever come into the kingdom of God, the only way we can ever be brought under the reign of Christ, is if God comes to us. If God pursues us. If Jesus comes and seeks us out and saves us and reconciles us to God. He's the one who has to come and find us sort of walking down the road and turn us around. The Bible calls that repentance. You can almost think of Jesus being the one who grabs us by the shoulders and repents us. He turns us back to the truth. In fact, this is exactly what Paul says Jesus did. But now in Christ Jesus, 
you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You are here. You have faith because the Holy Spirit brought Jesus to you in your sinful rebellion and drew you out of the dregs of death with this word. The blood was shed for you and all of your sins are forgiven. In fact, Jesus pursues us with this word, and we're going to talk more about this word in just a moment, but Jesus pursues us with this word that brings us into salvation, but doesn't just bring us in, continues to sustain us in our faith. Because see, even as those who are already saved, we have this tendency to wander. We, pro- we are prone to sin, we still have struggles, and we still have doubts and questions. And if I could just take a, a quick caveat I do think that in the church, we need to learn how to be a little more patient and show a little more kindness towards those who are wrestling and doubting with their questions about God. I mean, is it a sign of rebellion when people have doubts and questions about God? Maybe, maybe not. But our position always needs to be one of love and mercy. I mean, look at the way Jesus treats these disciples. These are people who heard his teaching, who heard the first preaching of the resurrection, who were with Jesus, who knew all of this, and they still didn't get it, and they still doubted, and they still struggled. And Jesus doesn't just let them walk away because they couldn't figure it out. Even now, he still pursues them. He doesn't stop going after them. He doesn't stop giving himself to them. He comes to them again to give, him once, to give them once again the truth of his word. This is the way he reigns over us. Always, always pursuing us, sheep prone to wander. He is that good shepherd who always comes for his sheep and draws us back to himself. And he does this then by means of of his word. Now this, this is exciting because this is now leading us to the second P in our alliteration. First, he is the God, the Lord, who pursues his people by grace alone. Now we also see that in his uh, position of authority, he is a Lord who makes proclamations. Proclamations. So he is a Lord who pursues and he is a Lord who proclaims. Now, the issue with proclamation is this. Remember, he is a Lord, and all lords, they have this business of making royal decrees over their people. We call these royal decrees preaching. Now, we have to be clear about preaching. Preaching is not someone standing up and berating you because of just how bad you really are and trying to sort of uh, bludgeon you into obedience. Preaching is not always hellfire and brimstone. Preaching is not... Uh, seven steps to how to be a better parent in the kingdom of God. Notice that's not what Jesus does today when he comes to these disciples. Instead, this is what he does. Beginning with Moses and the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. God, to preach to us, to proclaim to us, opens up the scriptures to show us how they are all about Jesus and what he has done to save us. I wish I was there. I would love to have heard that conversation on the road where Jesus takes the Old Testament, the the historical accounts, the law, the promises, the Psalms, the wisdom literature, the prophets, all of it, and shows how all the words and all the works of God had built up to this moment of Jesus' dying and rising for the salvation of the world. This is what Jesus does. He stands, he comes to us, he pursues us, and he gives us himself from his word. This preaching, this proclamation is a gift. 
Now, to be sure, he does have to rebuke us. He does have to call us out in our unbelief. Talking with those disciples that day, he does say to them, you foolish ones, how did you not see this? How could you not recognize this? He did have to expose their unbelief to them. He had to make them, just as he has to for us, he has to make us fools where we think ourselves so wise so that we might finally despair of ourselves and recognize we cannot trust ourselves. Because it's only once we, he has us there that he can come to us with his promises of forgiveness and life and salvation. So that what he does for us under his reign is he sends to us preachers. People who bring this royal proclamation, people who declare these words of God to us to both show us our sin and then present to us our Savior. Sometimes these preachers come to us in the form of a pastor. This is what I'm doing here for you this morning. Sometimes it's, it's another church worker, DCE, someone who works in the office. Sometimes it's a brother or sister in Christ. Sometimes it's your parents. Sometimes it's your Sunday school teacher. Sometimes it's your choir member friends. Sometimes it's your family members, your kids. It could be anybody, but the Lord sends us his preachers. So they might hand to us the good news of what Jesus Christ has done to save us. They might make the announcement like sort of royal heralds announcing to us the good news by royal decree your sins are forgiven. Christ has come for you. And that's, by the way, what you're even doing here this morning, what I'm doing here now. Christ has you here to hear the truth. That you and I, much like these disciples on the road, are more foolish than we care to admit. You don't believe nearly as strongly as you should. You don't love God or your neighbor more than yourself. You don't forgive as you have been forgiven. Your thoughts and desires are soiled with sin. Your works are aimed at your own belly. Your words hurt and harm. Your heart belongs to so many other things that are not Jesus. You get the idea. When Christ comes to us with his word, he has to do this painful work of exposing our sin. But under this Lord, you don't have to hide those things. Jesus, as our Lord, isn't leading sort of this holy angelic Gestapo that's just waiting for us to like mess up so they can finally crush us and throw us into prison. Rather, Jesus says, with your sins in my kingdom, confess them. Bring them to me so that I can take them away from you. If you say you have no sin, you're deceiving yourself and the truth is not in you. But if you confess your sins, Jesus says, I am faithful and just and I will forgive your sins and I will cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And that is why I am here this morning, so that I can actually announce that to you, so that I can stand up here as that herald and make that royal decree to you today. From the word, from the mouth of Jesus himself, you are forgiven because his blood was shed for you. You have a Lord who is Lord who forgives. He exercises his authority and mercy for your sake. He pursues you by his grace alone. And he has this proclamation to make over you, your sins are forgiven. In fact, wherever Jesus goes, he shows up with forgiveness. Jesus comes simply to forgive. Which then brings us to our third P. He pursues us by grace, he proclaims his forgiveness to us, and then he is present with us throughout our lives. He is a Lord who is not far off someplace, but he is present. And his presence means forgiveness. Notice what happens with the disciples here. So they drew near to the village to which they were going, and he acted as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, saying, 
Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. And when he was at table with them, he took bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. Now, I don't know if this is exactly the Lord's Supper as such here at this meeting, but certainly it calls to mind the Lord's Supper. Jesus makes himself known to them in the breaking of the bread. Jesus shows that he is present with them in the breaking of the bread. Now, in a few weeks, we're going to talk about the ascension of Christ. And and, and the ascension sometimes feels like Jesus has gone away, but that's not what the ascension means. The ascension is not Jesus going away. It just means Jesus is going to be present with us in a very different way. This is why he makes promises to us, like, I am with you always to the end of the age, and whenever two or three are gathered, I am there with them also. But then the question becomes, where? How is he among us? Well, again, just like with the disciples on the road to Emmaus, he makes himself known to us in the breaking of the bread. We don't see him here in the bread and the wine when we come to the Lord's Supper, but we hear him. We hear his promises, take and eat, this is my body, take and drink, this is my blood, really present, actually here, given for you to eat and drink for the forgiveness of all of your sins. And it's his presence with us that sustains us into life everlasting when we will finally see him face to face. So this Jesus, this is your Lord. He is the one who has authority over heaven and earth, and he is the one who has authority over you. But unlike every other Lord that you know in this world, He is a Lord who reigns by grace alone, pursuing you, proclaiming to you His decree that your sins are forgiven on account of His blood, and then being present with you, especially in the sacrament, for you to eat and drink His body and blood for the forgiveness of your sins. All authority is His. And He exercises that authority so that I can make the decree to you today. Your sins are forgiven. You are a member of his kingdom forever. Amen. We pray. Father, forgive us for pursuing other lords. Forgive us for not being satisfied with the lordship of your son which you have given to us as a gift. Teach us, dear Father, to trust him in all things and grant us your Holy Spirit so that our faith may not waver. We thank you, Lord, for the gift of your son that he is in fact and indeed risen and our Lord. In his name we pray.